The reading today is from Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20, page 1005 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus accused by his family and by the teachers of the law. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Belzebul, for the prince of demons is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Thanks be to God. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage before us this morning, would you come once more by your Holy Spirit? May we not misunderstand who Jesus is. May we come to a true understanding that we will call him our Saviour, our Lord, our brother. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can keep that quotation up there uh, if you want. If you get bored of what I'm saying, you can read that and meditate on that for the next uh, 20 minutes. When I was preparing uh, this week, this quotation, quite famous from C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure some of you have read it before, very much seemed to sum up what was going on in the story that we have before us today in Mark's Gospel. Two misunderstandings and then coming to a true understanding of who Jesus is. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet 
and call him Lord and God. I want to take two of those misunderstandings that we find in this passage and then hopefully bring us through to the true understanding that Jesus ends up with at the end of this little story. The first of those then I've called a demonic misunderstanding. Demonic misunderstanding. This is the teachers of the law who come down from Jerusalem in verse 22 and say he is possessed by Beelzebub or Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That word, uh, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, we don't find very often in scripture. Uh, It can be translated uh, like the book, Lord of the Flies. It can be translated as Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, Lord of demons, prince of demons. In other words, the authorities are saying of Jesus... You are possessed by the devil. You are here not to advance God's kingdom, but to advance the devil's kingdom. We need to step back or step into, put it whichever way you want to, what's actually going on here in terms of spiritual context and the spiritual conflict. The moment that Jesus steps, and I'll do this to demonstrate, there's a moment that Jesus steps down, you can see me over there now, can't you? Out of heaven onto earth, a spiritual battle really starts to rage. Jesus serves notice on the devil that the Son of God is in town. When Jesus answers, and it says in a, in a, in a parabolic way, when Jesus answers the teachers of the law. He takes that reference to binding up the strong man. What is he saying there? He's saying, well, I'm casting out demons because I've bound up the strong man. If you're going to burgle a house, I've never done this, but if you're going to burgle a house and there's a strong person in there, you tie up the strong man and then you can take the possessions. That's what Jesus says here. What is he saying? I've tied up the devil. I've tied up the enemy. And now I can take back his captives. Now, of course, that ultimately plays out at the cross. It's at the cross when Jesus, as he is hanging there on the cross, the principalities and powers are being crucified. It's at the cross when Jesus takes the captives back. It's at the cross when sin is dealt with and all of the evil, all the way that the world is being worked by the devil is taken back. That's, that's the war that has gone on. Now, of course, we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and there are still skirmishes going on. This world is not perfect, is it? That's why we have intercessory prayers. That's why we pray for different situations around the world. Our lives are not perfect. The enemy is still at work in the world, but notice has been served. There's a time coming in the future when Jesus will return, when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the devil will finally, finally be put in his place. But we need to get out of our heads. Jesus is demonstrating it here. It's true today. We need to get out of our heads any kind of dualistic understanding that you've got Jesus here and the devil here and there's a battle going on and there's a kind of equality. It is not the case. Jesus is the one in authority. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. 
He is trampling Satan under his feet. Amen? Shall I show my Pentecostal roots there? Let's do that again. Amen? Yeah, that's better, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Preach it. It's in that context, Jesus has been casting out demons in those early chapters in Mark. And you can read through, and there are several examples of it. What's really interesting is when he casts out demons, they refer to him as the Son of God. In other words, the demons acknowledge who Jesus is. Isn't it ironic that the teachers of the law don't? They've come down from Jerusalem. They've heard the accounts. They've probably witnessed some of the accounts. They've seen some of the miracles. They've seen some of the demonic casting outs going on. They can't cope with it. It challenges their authority, you see, because there seems to be some authority in Jesus that they don't have themselves, that they don't possess themselves. And so they're challenged by that. Here's a man who's out of their control. Here's a man that people are flocking to. And so they come up with this, and I use the term, it's advisedly, but they come up with this wicked, and it is wicked, accusation. You're doing this in the power of the devil. We'd love to see more miracles today, wouldn't we? We'd love to see more miracles going on in our society. And I still believe that miracles go on today, and I've, I've seen miracles happening around the world. But sometimes people say, if you could just perform a miracle now, if a miracle happened, I'd believe. Really? Because the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, when he walked amongst them, saw miracles, saw demons being cast out, and still chose not to believe. Jesus replies, and he's always so sensitive, isn't he, Jesus? I love the gracious, loving way that Jesus replies here to this accusation. You see, he's the son of God, possessed by the Holy Spirit, not the devil. I mean, if I was him, I would have really gone into it here. How dare you? But he doesn't. He speaks in Proverbs here, it says, in, in parables. What does he say? Look, actually, what you're saying here, teachers of the law, is nonsense. How can Satan drive out Satan? Doesn't make sense, does it? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. These enders come. What you're actually saying, he's saying to them, is complete nonsense. But then he goes on, as well as the strongman stuff, then he goes on to the kind of real PowerPoint in the message. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, we know something's coming that's quite powerful. Everything he says is truth, but this is like double truth. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Should we just stop there for a moment and just say, wow. People can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander that they utter. Let's just receive that. This is Jesus speaking to us today. We can, be we can be forgiven all of our sins. Isn't that wonderful? Everything we've ever done, we can be forgiven. We could just wallow in that now and just worship him for that. Hold that in our hearts and concentrate on that as we go into the second half. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. 
They are guilty of an eternal sin. If you've been around in Christian circles uh, for a number of years, you've possibly had these conversations before. The unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin that is mentioned here? We need to work this out just so that I don't go and do it. I've got to know what it is so I don't do it. Come on, what is it? Well, Jesus doesn't come up with a, a really handy dictionary definition here of what it is. He's speaking in parables. But what I would say is this. We can draw out of the context and we can take from what he is saying. First of all, it seems to be something along these lines. It's accusing Jesus of being empowered by the devil and not the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing here. What you are doing is of the devil, Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. That's one aspect to it. Secondly, alongside, it goes with that, that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good. You're doing all these miracles because you're evil, and that's your motivation. You want to advance the devil's kingdom, not God's kingdom. That's what you're about. And thirdly, in all of the commentaries I've read on this, they all seem to agree with this point. It seems to be a hardening of the heart that is a continual state of being all the time. So a continual hardening of heart, accusing Jesus of being empowered by the devil and advancing the devil's kingdom. Now, I suggest to you, to everybody here, you probably have not committed that sin. In fact, if you are anxious about whether you've committed that sin, that is evidence you have not. Because you haven't got a continued state of hardening of heart if you're actually saying, what can I do about this? Indeed, Jesus doesn't even accuse them of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He just warns them against it. But it's still a very salutary warning for us to think about. In my reading of the Bible, I cannot find an example where somebody asks for God's forgiveness and he doesn't forgive. He always does, doesn't he? One of my favorite stories is the thief on the cross. Well, there are two thieves, but the one who turns to Jesus and asks for forgiveness And Jesus says today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them. If you want forgiveness and you turn to God, he promises to forgive you. Amen? Amen. Chatted a little bit with Andrew before the start of the service. And I've heard Andrew say before from the front that uh, in his past, he used to live life like an atheist. Jane, you were all right. You had it sussed. You used to go off and do the church stuff and all that. but, But Andrew... He was an atheist. This Bible stuff was nonsense. This Christian message is nonsense. Don't believe in God. You can can keep that, Jane, but I'm having nothing to do with it. I'm slightly putting words in his mouth, but that's effectively what was going on. And Andrew now stands out the front with a dog collar on. Has God forgiven you? Yes. Amen. Saw the error of his ways. Jesus came and changed his life, even though he was once an atheist. God can and will forgive us. If he can forgive Andrew, he can forgive anybody. (laughs) That's the demonic misunderstanding that's in this passage. 
The second one is what I've called the foolish family misunderstanding. The foolish family misunderstanding. Now, the way that Mark writes, he's quite clever in how he puts Jesus' stories together, and he often writes with this kind of sandwich approach. So there's a, there's a sandwich of, of, of a story with a bit at the start and a bit at the end with something in the middle. That's what sandwiches are, obviously. So in the middle, we've got all this understanding to do with the demonic side of it. And at the start and at the end, we've got this family, this foolish family misunderstanding, as I've called it. And then Jesus finally explains what it's really about. So at the start, when Jesus is in the house, loads of people there, disciples, not even being able to eat, whether they run out of food or not, we don't know. His family heard this. Now, it says family. It can mean family or it can mean those close to Jesus. doesn't really matter at this point. But when they heard about it, they went to take charge of him. And that word to take charge is, is the word they use for arresting. So it's, right, you're coming with me. Come on, you're coming with me. That's it. We're taking you home. We're going to sort you out, son. We've had enough of you. Quite an aggressive sort of word there. Because he's out of his mind. I mean, he's really lost it this time, Jesus. I mean, we've, 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 we've coped with all this walking on water nonsense and this, this water into wine stuff, but, but now he's got thousands following around after him. And he's casting out demons left, right and centre and he's performing miracles and everybody's going wonderful and all of that. Right, we've had enough. You've, you've lost it. You're coming home with us, son. We'll give you a tablet and everything will be all right and everything will calm down. Whistle we'll out what your life's really going to be about. And then we get to the end of the sandwich. And here, they actually name who's there as part of the family, Jesus' mother and brothers. Now, we honour Mary, a wonderful lady, and there's loads of fantastic stuff that we can take from in terms of Mary's response to Jesus. But, but, but that isn't the point here. The point that Mark is trying to get across is that here we have some very close people to Jesus, who are accusing him of being out of his mind, of being a fool. It's interesting, it says at the end, that they were outside and they send somebody in. They called, come on, let's take Jesus home. Now, in the words of C.S. Lewis, you can shut him up for a fool. That's what's going on there, he's out of his mind. And you may sit here and think, well, we, you know, we wouldn't call Jesus a fool definitely wouldn't do all that kind of demonic stuff you're talking about. We definitely wouldn't call Jesus a fool. But the challenge I suggest for us as church is this. It's not so much what they misunderstood, it's that they misunderstood. In other words, this is not teachers of the law who've come down from Jerusalem that are misunderstanding. This is Jesus' biological family. They aren't understanding him. They've seen him grow up. They've seen him as a child. Played with him in the streets. Worked with him in the carpentry shop or whatever. They've been around him all his life. And they aren't getting it. I think what Mark is trying to say is this. You can be close to Jesus, but not with Jesus. You can be close to Jesus, but not with Jesus. If you heard uh, Eddie preach last week, 
he was preaching, or he invented this word, withing. I don't know if anybody was here, but he talked about withing, being with Jesus. That Jesus called the apostles to be with him and close to him and alongside him. A sense of intimacy and how we need those intimate times to get alongside Jesus and to be set apart and go off with him. Perhaps, no, not perhaps, I think this is a greater challenge than blaspheming the Holy Spirit to the church in this country. Because you can be close, but not with. We can go to the services, we can sing the hymns, we can pray the prayers, we can even take communion and not be with Jesus, in that intimate place of relationship with him. And that's what Jesus finally goes on to say in these last couple of verses, which is what I call the true family understanding. Jesus' and mother's and mother and brothers arrive, standing outside, they call. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I try to climb in and imagine that what that must be like. Biological family are outside. Teachers of the law are having a real go. And then Jesus looks at those who are around. And he says, Philip, you're my brother. Rocky, you're my brother. Victoria, you can be a mother. Jane, I'm not going to go grandmother. I'm going sister. But can you imagine being there when Jesus does that? He's got his biological family outside and he's looking in the eyes of those who are sitting around him and looking with love and saying, you got it. Of course, those who were sitting around Jesus and I'm not pointing at anybody here, but they were quite a disreputable bunch, weren't they? Jesus' followers were. Mixture of tax collectors and sinners and all sorts. And Jesus said, ah, this is family. This is what counts. Wow. That's a little bit of a challenge to us, I think, given the context when Jesus was speaking as well as today. Because biological family meant a lot in those days. Meant a lot in Jewish and Hebrew culture. For Jesus to be saying, those outside, no. Not my mother and brothers outside, but here are my family. That would have been quite shocking. Perhaps quite still shocking for us as well today. To look around, whether we have children or not whether we feel that we're part of a family, we are here. We're part of God's family. We're part of Jesus' family together. 
There's two aspects here, which are, and this is my final point, there are two aspects here to do, with, to do with being part of this true family. One is the with sense that I've already mentioned. It's a being. It's a state of attitude. It's an attitude of heart. This is just me, maybe, but I'm sure others experience this as well. But if, if I don't get my time with Jesus during the day, if I go a few days for whatever reason because I'm busy or I've just got my priorities wrong, There's something lacking in my life. I feel dry. Helen will give testimony to this. I'm more snappy. Don't nod too much at that. (laughs) I've not been so loving to my biological family because I've not spent time with my heavenly father. I've not spent time with Jesus. And I don't open the Bible and spend time with him and pray because I have to. It's because I need to. Honestly, I need to. I need to be with him like that. It's an attitude of heart, I suggest. But that then works out, as Jesus says here in the final verse. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Out of that attitude, out of that being, the tax collectors and sinners who were sitting around Jesus in that place... He looked at them and said, you're doing God's will. That's what makes you a brother, a sister, a mother. In my own quiet time again, I most days pray through the Lord's Prayer. It's just how I structure my prayer life. And if you pray the Lord's Prayer, I think it's fantastic. It just about covers everything. We would do, wouldn't it? Jesus taught it to us. And when you get to the bit where your kingdom come, your will be done. Sometimes I, I, he pulls me up. Really? Yeah, 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 your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah but, yeah, but really? What about this area of your life? What about your family? I love my family. Honestly, I really love my family. I love Helen. I love the boys. I love family time. I'm really looking forward to going on a holiday together, just having family time. I would do almost anything for my family. But there is an almost. And they know this. Jesus is my priority above my family. Has to be. And we have to apply that ourselves in our own lives. Whether that means over finances, whether that means job, whether that means involvement in church, whatever it may mean, Jesus has to be the priority over our family. And that's how God's will is working out. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I invite you to come this, this morning, this afternoon now, this afternoon as we take communion, as we go into the rest of our service. With all of the muck and the mess and all the things that we've confessed and been forgiven of, it doesn't matter, our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. Jesus would say, mothers, brothers, sisters, I invite you, come to me today. Come and find a home. Come and find life. Come and live with me and do my will. Amen.